Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yuella Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how's it going? Good. How are you, Yuella? I'm really well. So I spe- saw that you spent a long time in Canada uh, over the break. Um, it was really nice to be back. Um, I was back for like a couple of weeks. So I spent um, pr- about two weeks in Toronto, and I spent a little time in Kirkland Lake, which is where my brother lives. Um, and I've decided that that's the real Canada. Um, I, I'm guessing that you haven't been to Kirkland Lake. It's so real that I've never even heard of it. <laughs> so it's like seven hours north of Toronto, which I think when you look on like a map of Ontario, it's actually not that far up in Ontario. Um, but it feels like you're just like driving and driving and driving into the wilderness. Um, and things just get like, there's just more and more snow and more and more trees. And that's just like, that's what's there. Wow. Why is he there? Uh, so he works as a public health nurse. Um, and so he got this job like right before COVID actually, and ended up doing a lot of like um, contact tracing and stuff like that while he was up there. Um, so now I think he's like a pro, like an expert um, public health nurse in these domains and stuff. Um, but I think when he originally graduated from nursing school, it was like tricky to find a job in public health in Toronto. Maybe now he has more um, expertise because I think he he wears like a lot of hats um, where he's at. Um, but Because it's so cold, you mean? Exactly. <laughs> a lot of toques, as we would say. Yes, yes. Just keep layering on the toques. Does he like it there? Is he thinking about staying? Uh, that's an interesting question. So he um, he seems content there. Uh, and I think that he would be content in most places. Um, but I, I sort of suspect that he won't be there forever. So like he might prefer to be in a place with like more people and, um, yeah, more people like his age and stuff like that. So I don't think he'll be there forever. How many people live there? Good question. I don't know the answer to that. My guess is like a couple thousand. Is that a crazy guess? That's not a crazy guess. Uh, it says population 7,900 roughly. Damn. Okay. And it is, let's, let's see. I'm, I'm zooming out. I'm still zooming out. I'm still zooming out. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. That is way, I've never been further North than, than Sudbury. And that is like quite a bit North of that man. That's like, if you get further North of that, there's really not much left up there. Like we're talking like Arctic circle pretty Uh soon. Yeah. Yeah. He has like snowshoes that he uses like for for practical purposes, like not just to like go for a snowshoe, but to like get somewhere he needs to go. (laughs) I I find this so crazy about Canada. Like this is such a dumb observation, but like how much further north it goes than the places that I go. Right? It's crazy. Like I'm this tiny band by the border with the U.S. and it's there's just so much up there. Uh huh. Yep. Mostly bears. Yeah. (laughs) All bears. So you also, you traveled to cool places, right? You went to the Rocky Mountains? Yeah. So my girlfriend and I now, uh, for the third time, did this trip out to Alberta in December, pre-Christmas, and they get snow earlier. So we usually go out there and do some snow stuff, some like snowshoeing, um, like recreational snowshoeing and uh, cross-country skiing and hiking and stuff like that. And it was great as usual, uh, but... We got some of this like really, really extreme cold that then later became this cold front in the U.S. as well, which uh-huh. I don't know if you got to experience that at all. I saw like 
on your Instagram or something some temperature that I've I don't think that I've ever experienced. How cold did it get? It was negative thirty four Celsius at the lowest, which I think Ooh. is like uh yeah, like close to negative thirty Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's insane. It's like negative forty is the the overlap, right? The crossover point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like Oof. you go outside and like instantly everything about you freezes. Like your eyes freeze, your like Ugh. tears freeze, your eyelashes together, the inside of your nose freezes. Uh-uh. It is unreal. Unreal. That yeah. Sounds horrible. So, yeah, that was well, it was it was a novelty to experience it. Uh yeah, it was right. not the sort of weather that you would want to do anything outdoors in, but luckily that was just the last couple of days of our trip. So those days we just stayed inside and uh and marveled at the cold. So, okay, what are we drinking today, Alexa? Um, I am drinking a beer by Sun Lab called Big Big Energy, which is an American sour ale. Um, astute listeners will realize that I drank this um, two episodes ago, um, but I have not been in my house much, so I, I took whatever beer was <laughs> still in my house. So I feel like we're on the same page because I found on the back of my fridge the Corona that I bought a few episodes ago for uh, to drink on air, and I have not finished that six-pack. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm drinking the leftover Corona that was in my fridge. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we're we're really taking this seriously. All right, and I actually, I, I was pre-drinking, so I already poured mine. No so way, I can't me do the too. Noise. Oh, no. I was really right, hoping well, we'll, that you were going to... I was relying on you. We'll, well, okay. We're we're gonna. We have an audio effect for this, so we'll just we'll we'll just. I'll put this in here later with the magic of editing. Mm. I gotta say, like Corona's pretty good. I like Corona actually. It's a very refreshing. Yeah, exactly. It it really doesn't get enough credit for everything it does right. All right, so wow, we have an action-packed show. We have a couple things that we wanted to talk about. Um, our main topic today is going to be how people think about the IT, that is, members of the public. Uh, Alexa found a paper on that, uh, sort of a qualitative paper, and that's really interesting examination of uh, this through the New York Times comment section. So that's coming up. But uh, before we do that, I wanted to tell you a story, Alexa. So have you heard of the new college in Sarasota, Florida? I have not heard of this new college. So I I would imagine that most of our listeners probably haven't heard of it or hadn't heard of it as of like a week ago. I happen to know about it because I have a friend who, who works there uh, as a faculty member. It's a small liberal arts school, so the total enrollment is like something like 600. It's a public school, uh, so it's a state university, uh, sorry, college. Uh, they don't have graduate students. Um, and it was known as sort of, uh, if you're familiar with Evergreen at all, uh, sort of very uh, hippie slash progressive, um, you know, design your own curriculum, nobody gets a grade kind yeah. of kind of it, institution. Do you know the, the College of the Atlantic? Um, no. It sounds like it could be very similar. Yeah. Um, also like a really similarly small enrollment, very like sort of, um, yeah, very like green identity. Yeah. 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 Student yeah. Very crunchy, that sort of vibe. Yes. Um, and so as, as listeners might know, uh, Florida has been trending Republican. 
And Ron DeSantis was reelected governor there recently with a pretty big margin and feels that he came with a, in with a mandate. And from what I hear, the Florida government in general has not been happy with this college for a while. Uh, partly, I mean, so allegedly because their enrollment is low, which which it is, right? I, I think uh-huh. it's um, pretty uneconomical from a like dollars per student perspective, but but then also obviously because they're politically, you know, they don't like them. Uh, and so what the state of Florida is doing is basically turning over the board of trustees, um, replacing a bunch of people with, uh, I think it's just fair to say, fairly conservative folks, including conservative activist Chris Rufo, who listeners might be familiar with as somebody who's... Um, I would say he was instrumental in getting people to care about CRT and kind of right. making it a bad yeah. thing. So yeah. he's like very good at picking culture war fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are saying that they are going to remake it as a sort of a conservative uh, classical college. Uh, so like kind of an explicitly conservative place that conservative parents can choose if they want to send their kids someplace that matches their values. So I have a quote here. Uh, from Rufo. Um, he gave this to Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times. Uh, we want to provide an alternative for conservative families in the state of Florida to say that there's a public university that reflects your values. So, remains to be seen how much of this is actually going to happen, uh-huh. but they certainly seem to be like at least appearing that they're really going to press the case and like get in there tell people they can't teach certain classes, tell them they have to teach other classes, presumably, pressure people to leave, presumably. Um, and that seems to me like really just terrible news. What do you think, Alexa? It does seem like terrible news. Um, so yeah, I'm sort of like conflicted about how to respond to this because to me, I see the like the thread in DeSantis's decision-making seems to be like he he makes decisions that will um like piss off progressives and democrats and liberals as much as possible in the sort of like yeah stoking culture wars kind of fashion that you described like attributed to rufo and so like yeah i mean i want to be like what a dick <laughs> but i feel like that's almost what he's going for yeah no exactly right like this is he he is such a troll um, the previous thing that he made national news for was flying yes. uh, migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Remember? Yes. Um, and he he was you know roundly condemned for that. Uh-huh. Um, but that's of course exactly what he wanted, uh-huh. right? And I think here this is ex- this is exactly the same kind of culture war trolling, where he's taking an institution that like I mean it's important you know within the, I, I I think within the Florida public higher ed system to have this kind of like a small liberal arts school. But in the end, it's it's a small, small school. And making it into, he hopes, this national issue that's going to lead to a bunch of headlines about how DeSantis is opposing, you know, progressive education. And like, he would like nothing better than a bunch of those headlines. So really, we're we're playing into his hands, I suppose. I'm, I, <laughs> that's very possible. He's probably like gonna, listening to the podcast right now, like, yes, this is exactly right. <laughs> That's right. He's like one of our... <laughs> One of our most loyal listeners, he's pumping his fists in the air right now in triumph. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess this seems to be, at least in 
in Florida, part of a general trend of the government intervening to at least attempt to tell professors what they can't teach. So they also have the... The don't say gay stuff. Uh, don't say gay. Uh, the stop woke law. Uh, that explicitly says that you can't teach that colorblindness is racist. Mm-hmm. That's like obviously a debatable proposition, but mm-hmm. saying we're going to legally prohibit you in your class from arguing that colorblindness is racist is right. It's, it's just wild. They they seem to be very willing to say you know we're going to ban you know very specific kind of propositions from being argued for in higher ed, and that that law applies to every university in the in Florida and has led to some people canceling their classes because they're uh-huh. just like, you know, we don't, I'm pre-tenure. Uh, I don't want to get in trouble. There's an article in ProPublica that talks about this. Mm, interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to teach this class because it's too risky. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. And for all that, I sometimes complain about like some of the excesses that we see on kind of our side this is way worse. I mean, this yeah. is the government literally coming in and saying, you can't teach this stuff. Yeah, right. Like dictating educational curriculum at the college level, which, I mean, it's very scary at the um, elementary school level and high school level as well. Um, but I think we're more used to the the curriculum within those levels being um, dictated more by the government. Um at the you know at the college level, I think that we think of the curriculum as something that is more dictated by college instructors who have a lot of freedom, or like that's sort of one of the principles behind how colleges work, um, how the concept of tenure works, right? So you're, that you can feel free to to teach what you want to teach without being worried about getting fired. And I mean, I have heard people comment on these types of laws, like. Like we, there was like a kerfuffle about the CRT laws at the University of Alabama and if this was going to affect us. And, um, you know, a lot of people responded by saying like, there's there's not really a way that this, this is going to have um, concrete consequences for professors. But I think also the hope is, because it's like difficult to enforce and um, and difficult to regulate, but yeah, I think that, that maybe the intention with the laws is not necessarily to to change the curriculum by arresting professors, but by, as you say, sort of scaring people into not teaching things and canceling classes. Yeah, I, I, I think the intent is to, to intimidate people. And, you know, with K-12 education, you have to go. Uh, so I think it's reasonable to say, you know, parents are required to send their kids to public school and they should have input into what the kids are being taught. Um, university or college is is optional and people have a lot of choices. And we also have academic freedom that says, yeah, researchers and instructors get to within reason teach the way that they see fit because they're the experts. And having the government say like down to the level of like this specific claim, mm-hmm. you're not to, allowed to tell people is true. I mean, it, it just seems dystopian. Right. Yeah. Um, another person on the board is this one of the board members at Hillsdale. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. They're, they're a like conservative Christian private college. Um, so 
I mean, I, I have seen the argument made. I, I saw this uh, on Twitter. Uh, somebody was saying like, well, I mean, isn't it reasonable that more conservative parents or students at, in Florida could have like a smaller conservative-leaning school to go to? And I, I actually think that's not unreasonable, but part of what's being done here is to take this existing school. Yeah, right. Like that's that's starts to fall apart. Like as I'm reading this Rufo quote, you know, an alternative con- for conservative families in the state of Florida to say there is a public university that reflects your values. Like, aren't there already public universities in Florida that are more aligned at least with conservative values than this one? Like this is this is not the place to start if what your your goal is is to provide um like more space for conservative students. Yeah. I mean it's almost like a mistake to like take the argument seriously yeah, I because know, I feel like right. it really is pure trolling, right? But like if you're saying all right, like forget about Chris Rufo, but to the person who says like, well, you know, shouldn't we be able to have like a small liberal arts school that more reflects conservative values which uh, New College obviously does not, right? They're right. like super progressive yeah. and everybody knows it. And that's why you go there. But then, yeah, I'd say fine, you know, arguably that's okay, but then start a new one. Don't like, you know, try it. It's just crazy. Like, can you imagine these people are like, you know, walking in to the the faculty meeting and like, yeah, congrats, you guys are conservative college now. You know, yeah, I would be super curious to know what it looks like for them to try to implement these things. I mean, it also is just like deeply sad. Like, I mean, living in Florida now um, as like somebody who is part of the queer community or transgender or um, yeah, like any anything that's being targeted by um, DeSantis's laws, it's like thank God you have this place that you could go to college and feel like really included and at home. And then, yeah, this feels like such a vicious attack on that sort of one domain of safety. So do you guys worry at all? Alabama, obviously, uh, red state, um, Republican trifecta there. They right, they completely run the state government. Are, are you worried that they're going to try something similar? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that like a lot of these laws have seeped out of Florida and affected other states. And, um, yeah, I don't see anything about the Alabama government that, or the governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey, who, <laughs> that would like prevent this from happening. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while, like, cause you know, uh, Yoris and I did this political diversity paper a long time ago, like 2012 or something. And when I gave a talk about it, we didn't put this in the paper, but when I gave a talk about it, I was always, part of my points, one of my points was, you know, we're, we're as a discipline and kind of like more broadly, just as a job, we're often publicly funded, right? So like mm-hmm. on the federal level by grants, but on the state level, if we work at a state institution by that government. And like, if we get too far out of sync with the beliefs of the people who are funding us, there are going to be consequences. Like, they're, they're eventually going to come. And it seems inevitable that red states, which are many states, are are going to be coming for this stuff, it, it, particularly if it looks like DeSantis does well with it in Florida. I guess one question I have is, okay, if it's inevitable, like, has this happened historically? Like, is there a way to look back and and I guess I sort of thought that 
there was an unspoken rule or maybe it's a spoken rule. And I know there are, there are like explicit laws that dictate the extent of this. Um, but that the government would shy away from censoring teachers and professors, but that seems to not be the case now. Thing one is like, is, is this going to be struck down on constitutional grounds? Right. You're interfering with people's freedom of speech. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's like, where's the motivation for it coming from? I think it's it's really like education polarization that mm-hmm. conservatives more and more feel like higher ed is their enemy. Mm-hmm. And that's relatively new. Interesting. Yeah, historically hasn't been true in, in the U.S. Huh. Yeah, so I'm very curious how this is going to turn out, but but if this is any indication, it's... <laughs> It's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's like, what else can you do? Yeah, man? I know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, our sympathies are with the faculty of the new college and the students. And yeah, oof. Anybody who's had to cancel a class. I mean, yeah. Even if it's something I completely disagree with, just the idea that like the government would come and tell you you can't teach something is just yeah. Like, yeah. All right. Well, we're agreeing too much. Can we find something to disagree about? <laughs> Maybe we'll disagree about the IAT. I feel like there's a lot of a lot of fodder there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Um, okay. Do you want to tell our listeners what this article is about? I do. And actually, I have a bit of a story for how I came across this. So um, I was reviewing a grant and. Um, one of the papers cited in the grant was this one. So this is a paper by Jeffrey Yen and uh, Kevin Durheim and Roman Tafferodi. Um And I recognized uh, a couple of those names, but Jeffrey Yen was in graduate school at the University of Toronto at the same time as me. Um, and I, uh, my strongest memory of Jeffrey's research um was that he gave this talk that was really influential for me um, at our like brown bag um, when I was in my third or fourth year of grad school. And he was one of very few people in the department. I always thought that Jeff was like really cool. And he was one of, one of very few people doing um, qualitative research. And he did this qualitative research project. And yeah, forgive me, I might, I might totally butcher this. This is how my memory has like integrated this study into the narrative of my life. But he he interviewed um, graduate students, uh, and his findings suggested that basically social psychologists um, were all like going through an existential crisis because we all sort of got into this field believing that it would have this real world impact. Um, because you know it has all of the sort of trappings of that, right? You're doing research that could like influence policy or something like that, and all of the research topics in social psychology seem like they really have the potential to impact people's lives. They're very relatable. Um, but then they, yeah, they experience this existential crisis when they sort of see how being in academia works and how difficult it is to actually have your work have an impact and how there's this sort of bigger gap between the um, the the way that this research gets like adopted in the real world and what we're actually doing. Um, and so I was like, whoa, <laughs> like... I can totally identify with that. And that just like, um, it just seemed like such an elegant uh, characterization of an experience that I was um, probably having at the time. 
Um, and so anyways, yeah, when I, I came across this article, um, yeah, like you said, this is uh, an analysis of the comments sections um, uh, in response to New York Times articles that talk about the concept of implicit bias. And this is sort of around the 2008 presidential election. Um, and I just thought it was like a cool approach to understanding what the public thinks about the IAT specifically, and also the idea of implicit bias. And so, I mean, you know, I think that IAT gets a lot of coverage within our field and I often talk about it in classes and things like that, but that was a, a cool approach to sort of ask the public what they make of these results in particular, because I often think people use the IAT in their classes and it could be useful to sort of understand how students interpret these things um, to the extent that, you know, people who are commenting on the New York times articles are uh, overlapping with students. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get into the different themes that they extracted from these comments. Um, and it, it was just very cool to read a qualitative article, which I don't get to do that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was a neat data source and like a clever way to, to look at people's reactions to the IIT. Um, I guess what I want to talk about first and kind of get your thoughts on are the ethics of giving people uh, feedback at all. So just to set the context for people who... Um, have less yeah. knowledge of this. So the IT or implicit association test. Um, so it's a performance-based measure in which you're asked to uh, categorize stimuli. And typically the way it works is you have uh, exemplars from one of two categories. So the race IT, they often use black faces and white faces. You have to categorize them along with positive or negative words. And it gives you a score at the end uh, that characterizes uh, the ease with which you associated the white faces with positive, the black faces with negative, and vice versa. Uh, So the way that they talk about this typically is uh, that you have uh, weak, moderate, or strong implicit preference for one groups. Now, that gets a little blurrier when people talk about it. You know, often people talk about it as like biased or even implicitly racist, uh, but uh, the way that the IT folks talk about it in their kind of communications when you go to Project Implicit and take a test, they say you have a X degree of implicit uh, preference for one over the other. Now, the way this works for members of the public is that they can go to this website and they, they can take one of uh, a bunch of different ITs on different topics, uh, and typically then they're asked to fill out some other questionnaires there as well. And it's you know a huge data source um, that's you know extremely valuable and generative, and that people have written lots of papers based on uh, because they get just so many people coming and, and taking these tests. But a big part of what they what their draw is it, for the public is that they give you this feedback, right? And here's the thing. The test retest reliability of the IT in general and the race IT specifically is just not very high. So there's different estimates of that. Um, I'm uh, drawing these estimates from Connor and Evers uh, 2020, their Perspectives in Psychological Science paper. Um, and they say that uh, it seems, seems safe to conclude that the test-retest reliability of the race IT probably lies somewhere between 0.25 and 0.5. So you have people take the test twice, and that's how well their scores correlate. So that's low. And 
that says to me, maybe you don't want to give people this feedback at all because categorizing them, even as having a preference for one group over another, that you you don't know whether that's their true underlying preference or whether that's measurement error. And we know that there's a lot of measurement error in there. Now, on the website, I should say they do say, you know, the IT should not be used to diagnose. And they mean diagnose in the sense of we're going to screen out people who are implicit racists and not hire them, right? Right. But then they they don't really, from what I saw in the FAQs, and these are intended for the public, um, engage really with this, you know, what measurement error can mean for the interpretation of scores, right? So they have one FAQ that is, uh, what does it mean if my test result changes between Mm -hmm. administrations? And the answer says, there are many reasons why you might get different results when you take the test more than once. And the answers could be different for different people. Uh, could mean that your attitude is highly variable, possibly due to being a weak attitude. Could mean that your attitude changed between tests. They give some more things. It could also mean that the test is not working well. So I feel like answer number one should be, we should expect the answers to change based on the lack of test-retest reliability. That's like the definition of low test-retest reliability. It's like you're going to see different answers on different administrations. Right, but that doesn't automatically mean that it's that it's a bad test, right? So like you, you can have te- bad test-retest reliability for like if your attitude changes, for instance. I'm not saying that that's the most plausible answer, but um, but yeah, it's not. it doesn't inherently mean that this, the test is bad. Yeah, but like the kind of starting hypothesis ought to be it's measured with a lot of error and particularly because of this being you know uh, a timed performance task um right. done over the internet it, that I, I think seems like a very plausible reason to think that they're they're just not going to measure uh people's underlying attitudes that reliably and so is it ethical to give people a score at all when you know that you're measuring their implicit attitudes so noisily? That's the question. Yeah, right. So um, maybe like a, like a roundabout approach to answering that question. Like, So if you imagine that they weren't giving people feedback um, on the IAT, then like we wouldn't be having this conversation, I don't think. Like one of the reasons that there is all of this data about the IAT is that people are drawn to taking it because they get a score. So I don't think anyone would do, well, very few people would do the IAT if the IAT didn't give you any feedback. Um, So yeah, that doesn't mean that it's ethical to give people feedback. Um, But I guess I would argue that the, I mean, the feedback feels like a stepping stone to a conversation about the idea of implicit bias. Um, and, you know, whether that's what the IAT is measuring exactly is a different question, but um, but that's like essentially what the IAT is purporting to, to be telling people, right? You have a moderate, you know, preference in one direction or the other. Um, and I think that like conversation about the fact that we might have biases that we would prefer not to admit or that sometimes um, feel like they they go against how we want to feel. Um, I think that's a pretty useful conversation. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously the in the ideal world, 
the feedback would be given along with, you know, a very comprehensive explanation of what that feedback can mean, um, alternative explanations for what that tells us, the limitations of the test, you know, things like these test retest reliability results. Um, and actually, I don't know um, exactly what Project Implicit, the Project Implicit website where um, many people take the IAT. I don't know how it describes the results exactly to people. Um, do you know that, Yoel? Yeah, I haven't taken it recently. So when I did take it, and this was a while ago, it said um, that the results show that you have, a, like, let's say, a moderate implicit preference for black faces over white faces. Okay. They didn't. They don't tell you like maybe more they, about what like implicit preference means or what that like does that mean that you're. There, there, there or, is stuff on the website that yeah. that that talks about that. Right? Yeah. So they do have kind of like interpretation aids. Uh-huh, right. Um. So I think they're doing a good job in that respect. I, you know, it just seems to me like giving people this like precise answer when we know it's not precisely estimated is just the wrong thing to do. Like you could give mm-hmm. people a confidence interval, right? Yeah. You could say like, yeah, based on you know how uh, how reliable this test is, your score could plausibly be anywhere from you know here to here, something like that. I think that's a great idea. I like, and and it's an idea that I don't think would dilute people's interest in in the taking the test. Um, yeah, I mean, some people would completely ignore the confidence interval, of course, but. Um, I think that people would still find that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, and I think people do often say something like, well, you know, this is really an educational tool and we're trying to open a conversation. I just feel like for all the reasons we've talked about in the past, when you're doing scientific communication, like, I think it's on you to be super scrupulous uh-huh. about what you're telling people. And I don't think it's really an excuse to say like, well, you know, we're opening an important conversation. It's like, no, it's still on you to like, you know, tell people with the appropriate level of uncertainty, uh-huh. like what what we you know think the truth is. But do you have that same standard for other tests? So, like, do you expect the Big Five to be giving people confidence intervals if they're taking that online? Or um, I don't know. There are various other types of personality tests, like individual difference measures that people can take online, and they get feedback. Um, so why, why so critical of the IT specifically? I think it, it might really upset somebody to be told that they're biased. And I think, well, maybe it should though. (laughs) Well, not if it's not true. I mean, telling people something possibly false, that's emotionally upsetting for them is bad. That's, that's my contention. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I guess that's, I would be curious. So I don't know how to translate the like test retest reliability um, into like, okay, how many people are going to be on one side of the continuum when they take the test once and on another, on the other side of the other? Like, is that a high proportion of people? Yeah, I, I mean, it depends on how the data are distributed. Right. But if you have a, a like, if they're normally distributed um, and they're, let's say, like on average, people have like a mild implicit preference for like, let's say white over black people, then you could, there's a bunch of the distribution that's like right at that cut point that you could be misclassifying pretty easily. Right. Like you're going across the, across the cut point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, 
Yeah, I do think that that it's important to convey to people that this is one measure. It's not the be-all and end-all. It's not like the only thing that's going to tell you about whether or not you have biases, let alone whether or not you're racist or prejudiced. Um, But I do think that it, I guess it depends on, yeah, the, like, the extent of how untrustworthy something is. Um, But yeah, I think that it's okay to, it's certainly okay, I think, to tell people um, things that they don't want to hear about themselves. Um, And yeah, all all psychological measures have some error. Um, So I guess it's a matter of how much error we want to tolerate. But I also think that like, especially if you're giving people this information um, alongside the information that this is something that that you can take action on, um, then that seems even more productive. Um, and again, like I'm not sure what the what Project Implicit website says in terms of like, is this something that you can change? Like, what you know, what are like avenues for responding to an IIT score that you don't like? Um, but I mean, when I've had these conversations with students in my um, classes, sometimes they'll say things like, okay, well, maybe, maybe the like kinds of media that I'm watching are portraying like white or black people in a certain way. And maybe, maybe I should like make different decisions about that. Um, so like the, the idea that the, the test is, is tracking sort of like a history of the associations that you're forming based on what you're exposed to. That, that prevents, I think, a cool opportunity to, to examine those, those things that you've been exposed to. And like, if you think that it's important, try to shift them. Mm. So I, I guess this gets into something that we wanted to talk about, which is, have you used this in teaching? And if so, how? Um, I don't use it particularly formally in teaching. Um, I talk about the idea of implicit bias um, in some of my classes, if I teach like the history of psychology, I usually talk about it. Um, and if I teach social psychology, um, I talk about it. And yeah, I show people where they can go to take the test, I think, sometimes. Um, I've never done it as an assignment. I know that's pretty common. Um, but but yeah, I would I would talk about it. We would read about it. We'd consider like what is this really measuring? You know, what how what uh, a, a discussion question that I ask is like if you got an IAT result that you know you didn't like, you know, what would your response to that be? That kind of thing. I think I think that it is um, a really sort of like useful basis for a discussion. But I I don't usually um, require students or ask students to take it. Do you? No, uh, I did when I taught uh, Introduction to Social Psychology, which I don't anymore. I had kind of a demo version that uh, just asked them to use these clickers, which allow you to like vote in lecture, um, to click in. And I would go through these slides that showed, you know, positive word, negative word, blackface, whiteface, and uh, uh-huh. get them to do the, uh, you know, the, the responding. And I just asked them to introspect about whether it felt harder in one condition or another. Um, So I guess that's like, I feel like that the idea of that was to, well, 
get them to think um, and to give them a feeling for like what the test is like without giving them feedback, which might be wrong. Uh-huh. Um, and and then they still could you know think and talk about like, oh yeah, I really did feel like it was tougher in one condition than the other. Uh, yeah, okay. But okay, so you you would acknowledge that you can sort of feel the IAT effect? Well, I would ask them to think about whether it, it felt like they could or not. Um, I don't know that I told them that they, perhaps I implied that they would, um, but uh, I didn't tell them that they definitely would or anything like that. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess you could you could feel that one condition is is harder than the other or something like that, and then that's not borne out in your score. But I mean, the, I, I had that experience too when I took the IIT, which was also a long time ago. Um, and yeah, I felt I felt like some conditions were harder than others. Um, and I don't know, that felt that felt informative to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think all of these complaints about you know what are the appropriate caveats to give people when they're you're giving them their scores or something like i don't want to miss the fact that often like you really can feel that it it's harder one way than the other way right uh-huh. not necessarily with a race iat but like with with any iat where you have kind of strongly differing evaluations um like the you know flower insect one is kind of the demo one that they've used uh-huh. historically and it's it it can be pretty just visible to introspection uh-huh. that it like feels slower one way right. than the other way. Right. Yeah. Should we talk a bit about the what they actually found in this paper? So as a reminder, they were they were coding these New York Times comments for what people were saying about yeah. the IT. Yeah. So uh, they uh, found, uh, by my count, uh, five major themes. Um, the first one. I thought it is super worth discussing. Um, they call this implicit bias as academic abstraction. Um, so here's an example comment that they they coded as uh, exemplifying this. To me, the question of whether unconscious racism exists is almost irrelevant when one in 15 black adults and one in nine black men between 20 and 34 are in jail. Uh, I have not checked those statistics. So <laughs> I feel like what's interesting here is that this criticism is something that I feel like more and more you hear about the idea of implicit prejudice and the IT in general. Mm-hmm. Like the whole idea of like implicit racism or implicit prejudice being the thing you need to focus on feels almost a little dated now. Mm-hmm. It feels like 2008, right? Like and and now mm-hmm. this isn't these aren't really the terms in which progressives anyway would want to talk about racial uh discrimination or disparities. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I thought these these um co- kinds of comments were super interesting too. And I feel like they come in sort of like a a couple of different flavors. Um so one is like why bother uh studying implicit bias when you could study explicit bias, which is yeah, I mean pretty clearly like shittier um, much more likely to be correlated with people's actual behavior because people are actually willing to voice these things. Um, and so like, yeah, why are we sort of focusing on this like subtle feeling that you can sort of pick up on when you take this very contrived test and instead just like, you know, trying to address explicit racism, right? 
Um, but another uh, flavor, which I think is um, sort of exhibited in the comment that you read, is like, why are we talking about individual people's subtle attitudes when the bigger issues are systemic, right? And they're like happening at the level of laws and, you know, like the the criminal justice system and sentencing and like, you know, all of these social systems. So like, why do we, and this is something that like a topic that comes up when we talk about police violence, right? Should we be focusing on, you know, the IAT scores of individual cops or should we be talking about like, you know, uh, the ways that laws are structured, the ways that sentencing works, you know, the where people are policing, et cetera, et cetera. These sort of like broader, more systemic factors. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's funny, like it really does feel like there's been a vibe shift in how people talk and think about this, where it feels like didn't Hillary Clinton say the words implicit bias? Yeah. Even? In twenty sixteen, um, yeah. she sure did. In 2016. She was asked by, um, what's his name? Les- Lester. Uh, the, Lester Holt, maybe? Yes, yes, that's right. He okay. asked her to address implicit bias in, in one of their debates. Right. And so that was sort of like the, the, the kind of peak or maybe even like the beginning of the decline. And then since then, in the last like five, you know, plus years, it's just like, you. it just doesn't seem like it comes up that much anymore. And now what progressives talk about is more structural racism or else kind of very explicit prejudice. Yeah, but do you, I I wonder if it's sort of like taken a different form because the way that I see, like I think that the the IAT has been used and the like concept of implicit bias has been used as sort of like a rhetorical device to try to get people to be less defensive about the possibility that they might have these kinds of biases, right? So like to tell people, oh, you might, this might be something that was like sort of like beyond your control and it might be something that you're not even aware of. Um, And, you know, it's like you might be biased, but it's like not your fault is sort of like the entryway that I feel like the IAT provides for um, then sort of like getting into conversations about, okay, maybe this is something that, that, that you want to like acknowledge or address. Right. Um, and I think like, even without the IAT or the implicit bias language, um, in some of the sort of like DEI training approaches, there's this like theme of, okay, everybody needs to acknowledge that they, I don't know. It, it comes in various forms, right? That you that you have biases. Um, sometimes that you are racist, or you're part of like a systemic racist system. Um, that you have privilege is, I think, a connected concept, right? So this, like, yeah, maybe it's not exactly the same, but this idea that like you might be problematic in some way that's not really your fault, but that you now have some responsibility to, to do something about. I think that idea is still really prevalent. Yeah, yeah, no question. Although kind of the way that that's said, I think has shifted. Like I don't doubt that like there's plenty of, you know, DI trainings that are still relying heavily on the IT and in fact mm-hmm. I I got one at 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 the University of Toronto where they um the presenter talked quite a bit about the IT. But I feel like this sort of trickles down from like the cutting edge dialogue about it to, you know, the more mass market DEI trainings. And now I feel like the cutting edge dialogue 
is all about um, systemic racism and privilege. And that's a very different way of talking uh-huh. about, well, you didn't decide to do anything, but nonetheless, you know, you should feel bad. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think that's true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's sort of an interesting, I mean, like, I guess we'll see over time if it, it's sort of the IT kind of recedes more and more as I kind of feel that it has already, then I will feel vindicated. Yeah. So the second theme is like along these lines of like critical um, themes regarding responses to the IIT. And the second theme is um, accusing the IAT or the researchers that developed the IAT as being um, ideologically biased themselves. Um, so an example of this kind of response is what the test does seem to measure is the degree to which those in the academic sphere are willing to fall into my culpas. Oh, indeed, I am biased, even if I didn't know it. Right. Um, so this sort of like presents the IAT as part of a sort of uh liberal psychological research trajectory, um, which sets out to show that, that people have this implicit bias and, um, and, and perhaps like sort of isn't set up to allow finding otherwise, um, I guess is the claim. I think that like kind of scientific merits of that are pretty questionable. I understand why somebody might think that, right? If you're conservative and you know, I mean, correctly, that academic psychologists are pretty liberal, and here they come out with a test purporting to show that everybody's racist, yeah, it's, it's not unreasonable um, to, to question that or to be skeptical. Yeah, but do you think that that is fair? So like, I mean, on the IAT, again, for, for maybe people who have aren't familiar with the test or who haven't taken it, you can score on either side of the midpoint, right? So you can for the race IAT, which was one of the original IATs that was developed, like you can be shown to have an like a preference for white people or preference for black people, um, and when you think about like how the test works, I guess I guess you could imagine that the um, creators of the test put all really like bad pictures for the pictures of black people and all really good pictures for the pictures of white people. And they were sort of stacking the deck in their favor, but I don't hear critiques like that very often. Like I'm not, I'm not really sure how the, how the IAT is, is going to like confirm the researchers expectation that people are racist. I mean, if I was going to steal man this, I would say that especially in their, kind of popular communications about this, Greenwald and Benaji make some leaps from the data to the interpretation that are consistent with a particular sure. okay. political agenda. Yeah, the, the test shows one thing, and then they're kind of the way they talk about it is something else. I don't think that most people who object to this on political grounds are that nuanced in their, uh, you know, objections. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just think, you know... It's reasonable for people to say, hey, this group that I, you know, they're the opposing team politically. They came up with this. It's an answer that like seems to serve them and that I don't like. I'm going to question it. Right. Right. And yeah. That, right. That's that fair. Seems pretty understandable. Yeah. I, I would argue that there's a lot of, 
I mean, I, I would argue that that's a very valid critique of a lot of political psych research, for instance. I mean, you would know better than me, but I think that, you know, it's easy to like let, I've had this experience in my own work, right? Let let your biases seep in, in the like creation of stimuli or the way you design studies in such a way that like your study is much more likely to cast a negative light on conservatives compared to liberals. I think, I think that's true of a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, I think a big problem in item writing where you can just, it's easier for you to kind of inadvertently put your thumb on the scale or, you know, the way you're conceptualizing a construct or whatever. In this case, I mean, I do think like all these criticisms aside, like the IAT shows what it shows. Um, And I don't think that it's, you know, that they're setting it up somehow to, you know, produce a certain outcome or anything like that. It's the argument is always with interpretation and, how you talk about the results. Hey, uh, I need more beer. How are, how are you doing with it? Yeah, that sounds good. Your situation. Yeah. Are you okay? Cool. Let's be back here in a second. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter still at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us, DM us. Uh, Mickey and I at least will get those. If you'd like to email, show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Those emails will go to all of us. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com, is where you can find any of our episodes and you can drop us a line there as well if you like. If you're enjoying the show, uh, please just take a moment to rate and review us. Uh, on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. and just helps other people discover the show. Alexa, what is the updated beer situation? Um, I'm still drinking the same beer, so no updates. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I am I poured myself another Corona. This goes, it, it goes down very quickly, I gotta say. <laughs> it's just like extremely easy to drink because <laughs> it's yeah. quite watery. So, so yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how this ends up. Um, okay, so before the break, uh, we had really been getting into this paper, um, analyzing people's responses to uh, articles about uh, the IAT in the New York Times. And we had talked about uh, two of the themes that the researchers coded as emerging from these comments uh, implicit bias as academic abstraction and the IAT as ideologically biased. Uh, and I I want to move on to uh, the next three themes, which I feel like the the authors group them together as people who like generally accept that the IAT does what it says it does, and then okay, well, if you do, then what is your response? Right. Uh, so, 
the uh, the first kind of response they label confession, which I think is a really nice and kind of telling way to label it because it does have a quasi-religious aspect to it. Uh, uh-huh. So here's here's one example. Um, for the record, I took this test a while ago, and I have a slight anti-black bias. Although I think of myself as passionately egalitarian, I'm happy to own my implicit biases and glad to be made conscious of them. So I guess this person is not upset. Uh, someday, I hope to be able to take the same test and see how my brain feels about men and women. That's such a funny way to put it. Uh-huh. How you, you mean how you feel? <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really interesting distinction that I think a lot of people make, like what's happening in my brain versus like me, yeah. the real me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's also interesting because the the author's um, talk about the sort of self-presentational strategies that are present in these different kinds of um, responses. And so like, maybe it's easy to sort of see the first two. So, oh, like, why are people even bothering to to do the IAT um, or study it? And the IAT is ideologically biased and think like these could be self-presentational strategies. So maybe these people didn't like their IAT score, or they're defensive or whatnot, um, which we'll get to in a little bit. But the authors also sort of frame these next three as different sort of types of self-presentation. And the confession one, they argue, like fits with this sort of like Western and, and maybe sort of liberal practice of um, if we confess something then we're like sort of absolved of it and this is like a way of actually sort of um almost like conveying superiority it's like oh we're we're capable of admitting something um which yeah somehow seems better than than maintaining that we don't have that flaw at all i thought that was really interesting yeah i mean it like i guess if you're like well somebody might have this problem you would rather that they admit the problem and then presumably try to fix it uh-huh. uh, rather than denying that they have it this reminds me of something that um to pick on mickey that he used to do when we were in grad school so he would sometimes say things like uh like you guys aren't allowed to be late only i'm allowed to be late um and i feel like it's like he sounded like uh he got like some credit or something for just like admitting his blatant unfairness. Um, but then it was like, oh, if you actually thought about it, it's like, oh, actually, maybe that's not fair. <laughs> maybe it would be better for you to just like not have this unfair approach. But but he like right. somehow convinced you that like this was even more like uh, acceptable because he was like so willing to admit his unfairness. It's a, it's a subtle critique yeah. of the system when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So, so I, I guess that's, I, I mean, I see what you're getting at here, like this sort of confessional aspect of, you know, you're kind of beating yourself up in a New York Times comment section being like, uh, well, I got the score that said I was biased and, you know, I'm, I'm taking that on board and I'm, I'm going to think about this. And then you're like, okay, but like, does this accomplish anything except sort of a, a virtue signaling or maybe making the person like feel like they did the right thing? Yeah, right. Yeah, and this is something like other people have noted this. So um, in Jesse Single's book, The Quick Fix, he has a chapter on the IIT and he talks a lot and has some like nice examples of people real really like doing this like full-on confessional thing of like, you know, this, you know, I did this and I got this result and I felt really terrible about it. And then you're like, okay, but it's well, then what? Right. I, I don't know. 
And that that's sort of connected to skipping ahead. Um, so one of the other types of responses is this absolution um, type of response, which is interesting because, so as I was talking earlier about how I think the IAT has been sort of like used as as a way to to disarm people when it comes to conversations about um, prejudice and racism and things like that. Um, this absolution response is basically like, oh yeah, I guess this suggests that bias and maybe like prejudice and raci- racism are inevitable. And they're sort of like deep uh, aspects of human nature that can't be changed. And so like, you know, there's no point in really bothering to try to to do better. Um, so one of the examples of the absolution type of uh, responses, I do not believe we can ever get rid of racism and sexism from within ourselves. No amount of education on the importance of tolerance and equality can trump our biological instincts. Um, so this could be like kind of an ironic effect, I think, of, of the IAT and of what giving people feedback on the IAT might do, which is just to convey that, that this is, something that's sort of like deep and unchangeable and there's no, there's no point in sort of working on this. Yeah. I I mean, I, uh, this was the one category that I was a little bit like, well, is absolution exactly like the right interpretation here? Um, I mean, it's just, if you've ever read these comment sections, there are people who will just show up with opinions. Mm -hmm. And if it's sort of like, tangentially related to the opinion they want to tell you about, they're just going to go ahead and tell you about the opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, my question here is like, well, is the IT necessary for this belief or is it like right. that information causing this belief or is this just somebody who showed up with an opinion about the inevit- inevitability of bias and was like, aha, great, mm-hmm. like great opportunity to share that with the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is studyable. I guess. I mean, you could give people information about implicit bias or about something else and ask them, you know, how inevitable or um, immutable do you think people's biases are? Mm-hmm. That could be kind of a cool way to look at this. Yeah, I'm interested in that. So, yeah, I agree that that you can't always interpret a comment as something that has like read the content that is there and is a, you know, reasoned response to that content. Yeah, exactly. You're you're assuming th- they're responding to the article, <laughs> which may not be the case. Uh, yeah, definitely. But I do I do see the connection between the like inevitability um of racism or bias and the implicit aspect of the idea of implicit bias or the IAT. Like I think that people tend to see if if we were talking about explicit bias, um, it just becomes something that we're more conscious of and we have more control over how we express it. And I I do think that people would see that as something that is more changeable than something that is supposedly sort of like deep within their brain and they might not even know what's happening. And I know that that's like a a false dichotomy, but I think that people perceive it. I mean, it's like the, the comment that we just read, the one um, where the person says, someday I hope to be able to take the same test and see how my brain feels about men and women. It's like your your brain is this other thing. And I think people see it as more unchangeable, more affected by genetics, more affected by evolution, something like that. Yeah. So it, I think that, 
what sort of set me off about this particular like absolution comment is this mention of biological instincts is just like weirdly i mean maybe that was in the piece somehow which they you know we don't know what exactly the person was responding to but mm-hmm. if you're talking about the iat like the link to biology just like it just comes out of left field right so mm-hmm. the iat is i mean it's thought that our implicit uh associations are the product of the what we're exposed to in the social environment like mm-hmm. biology is like kind of irrelevant here and the fact that the person is kind of throwing it in there makes me think like oh maybe this is just their kind of hobby horse yeah belief. right but i mean yeah. that's a you know it's it's a speculation i do feel like reading these comments and these are like you know they're new york times readers right so mm-hmm. they're pretty liberal they're fairly educated they're bothering to comment on a story about um science and it's just there's some weird shit man there's just (laughs) it's just it's kind of dire and it really it makes you wonder about you know the the efficacy of trying to communicate any of this to the public honestly i had like in some ways i had the opposite reaction i was like wow people are really thinking about the iit like some of the criticisms seem really um seemed on point to you like fair and yeah i don't know i mean Sometimes I worry, you know, about science communication that like the the public is just going to accept these things without questioning and they're going to be learning a ton of things that are false, but they're clearly not doing that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, that's just being funny. like, "Oh, scientists I, said this. This must be true." Like they're not doing that. Yeah, no, they are they're, they're not overly credulous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, except maybe if it fits their, you know, yeah. uh priors or what they want to believe in some way. But like a- having you know, written a few papers that were then written up in like more mainstream outlets. Definitely lots of people have critiques. Yeah. They vary in their quality, uh-huh. I would say. Some of them are on point. Many of them are just like, I don't even know where to start with yes, this. Right, right. So um okay, so we there's one last one, um exhortation. Uh, which is I, I, I love the topic names here. Actually, I want to see yeah. that they're like they're just really good. Um, and this is basically just like yelling at people who disagree with you. I think <laughs> so. You're like you, you've drunk the IT Kool Aid and you're mad that people wouldn't. Uh, so critics, here's an example. Critics need to decide exactly what they are mad about. Understand how cultural defensiveness can make one throw a hissy fit in response to being called a bigot. And I think this is a great example of like my hesitance about like ever being in the media with anything that has any sort of like partisan or ideological tinge to it. It seems like many people are just attracted to the opportunity to yell about how the people they disagree with suck and will kind of like pull in your finding as a way to do that. Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, this is sort of like an interesting second level of defensiveness, right? Where it's like, they're like, you guys are only being critical because you're being defensive and like revealing some defensiveness on the part of the, it's a lot of layers. Yeah. It's, it's, it's basically, I I see it as your primary motive is to argue with people on the other side and tell them they suck. So you want to have an argument about their responses rather than about the like kind of underlying merits of the, or maybe these are really, really agreeable people who are upset that other commenters are disagreeing with the IAT. I just don't understand why these people are being (laughs) such jerks. Can't we have a civil discussion? This is not cool. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that that's that seems plausible to me. So, like having read all this, like what's your take on the attempt to communicate this research to the public? Do you feel like it mostly has succeeded? Do you feel it it's mostly missed and that people are just kind of misunderstanding or using this to have arguments they want to have anyway? Like what's what's your take? I guess I feel like the comments section could be, if it was like sort of dressed up in academic jargon, uh, the same debate that's had about the IAT within the academic community. Um, And in some ways that is encouraging because it sort of suggests that we don't necessarily have to put these. I mean, I I do think that as we've been talking before, when you're giving people feedback on these on these tests, um, that it's important to communicate what we do know about how reliable they are and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought that the the people who were writing these comments had like a lot of insight and like were pretty thoughtful about what this test actually means, where it might deserve criticism, what it might mean to sort of like undefensively respond to it and, you know, like take the results somewhat seriously. Um, so it made me think like if we're communicating about it within academia, you know, then, then maybe we can communicate about it with the public and it will make that much difference. Hmm. That's a characteristically positive take. <laughs> what do you think? I am. Um, we should take the IAT I, down and, or maybe just give people uh, confidence interval scores. I mean, you, yeah, you, you, you have my rant about the over precision in the reporting uh, already. And I haven't taken it in a while. For all, for all I know, they actually do now give you, you know, more information about uncertainty. But the last time I took it, they did not, um, and I still do think that's bad. Overall, you know, I mean, I mean, I think you're right that like people came up with lay people came up with some reasonable critiques. Um, I do think kind of bigger picture, it's fascinating the way that uh, you know the popular dialogue gets really into a concept and then it sort of loses uh, mind share pretty quickly. And I feel like that implicit bias has sort of followed that trajectory. So on a bigger scale, you could be like, well, why did that happen? Um, what are kind of like the bigger picture things that like got people to first focus on it and then less so. Um, and I don't have any answers there at all. Uh-huh. I'm curious about one more question, which is, in, do you think that getting an IAT score that says that you're biased against a group leads to positive outcomes? And if so, how? Like, Is there research on that? Like, What do people do? Like, do they change their behavior? Um, I don't know what the research says about that. Um, and yeah, so I have like very little even anecdotal experience with that. Um, my, my guess is that like often, so my guess is that people would respond, um, either by like dismissing the test or thinking that like the, the test is not telling them something like meaningful, um, that people might respond to the way that your DEI um, instructor did, 
where they take it really, really seriously. And they take a lot of steps to try to change their bias. Um, and then maybe that there's like a middle ground where, so I've, I've heard uh, Mazarin Banaji in a talk say that the way that she interprets the IAT score is that it's an indication of the thumbprint of the culture on your mind, right? So the idea being that how you score is a reflection of your cultural surroundings um, and your, you know, your what you're exposed to environmentally, and that's shaping the associations that are formed in your mind. And I think like a sensible way to respond to that is to think, okay, um, is the sort of like balance of the the kinds of the representations of these groups of people, is it not what I want or is it misleading me in some way? And should I attempt to, to change that? I don't know how many people respond that way, but I think that that would be a cool way to respond. Here's my um, critique of that is by focusing so much on what's going on in your head making that kind of the focus of the thing that you want to change i think it draws attention away from other things that you could be doing that might actually be more effective so for example if you think that you might show favoritism towards some students over others because you implicitly evaluate some groups more favorably mm -hmm. Then it seems like the more direct way to do that, to 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 combat that, would be to prevent yourself from doing that. So to say, you know, we have uh, a very well structured set of rules for when you can get an extension for an assignment, mm -hmm. or I'm going to grade blind to the identity of the student who submitted the assignment. Yeah, I agree with that fully, and I I agree with I think maybe something that you're also implying, which is that to tell yourself, I'm going to compensate for my bias, I don't think is a good way to respond. So to say like, oh, I have, I know that I have an implicit bias towards my white students, so I'm going to like dock them 5% on all of their assignments. <laughs> <extremely> like that, <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like a terrible plan. But I meant more like, right. okay, so I agree with your, you know, like, using like strategies that are going to prevent you from being able to use that information. I think that's great. Um, but then also, I also mean just like, you know, like what is like, what is in your environment? What do you watch on TV? You know, like what, who are your friends? You know, do you need to like expand your horizons? Mm -hmm. a bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is something that might be rewarding for its own sake, regardless of what the IAT says about you. But you know, if if it gets people to do that, uh, you know, <laughs> so much the better. Uh, have we? Do you think we've covered this adequately? Yeah, I do. Awesome. Um, okay. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.